Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, welcome everyone. Uh, this is our um, our second class on the third chapter. Well, the book isn't really out yet, so I can't call it a chapter. But the, the, the second class on the third lesson of our Vipassana Structured Study. This is on the Arya Pariya Sana Sutta. Uh, this is um, a little known but very significant sutta in where the Buddha gives clear instruction on where to find the Dhamma and where it's skillful to look, and where not to find the Dhamma, and where it's unskillful to look or spend our, uh, put our efforts towards. Um, it's a very clear teaching, and just as significant now as it was 2,600 years ago. Um, well, let me read the sutta, and I'll comment on it as I go along. And this is, um, this is about a quarter of the way through. We went through the first quarter of this uh, what's today, Saturday, last Tuesday, and um, we may spend uh, another week on this, depends on how far we get to today, and this time as we go through the Vipassana structured study, um, I'm going to take a little license with uh, completing the suttas. In other words, next week is the Paticca Samuppada Sutta, another long sutta, and I'll probably spend two weeks on that at least, get into these a little bit deeper than we did last year. So this is, after the Buddha described um, the the foolishness of ignoble searches and the worthiness of noble searches. Then he describes um, it's ignoble to search for understanding where understanding cannot be found. It makes sense, doesn't it? But because we are rooted in our conditioned thinking, we much prefer to use any type of so-called spiritual practice as a way to continue our ignorance rather than develop understanding. And so that inclines the mind to grasp after things that will do just that, that will, that will continue ignorance, even though that mind might believe that it's actually developing something worthwhile. It's, it's just a continuation of that ignorance. And so then the Buddha describes where, where what is subject to stress and suffering and ignorance and how to avoid looking there because again it's just a distraction so the, the buddha asked the rhetorical question what is subject to birth because if we're looking in in birth for understanding um satisfaction even enlightenment we're we're, we're going to be disappointed and distracted because it can't be found there, can there? Can there be? So the Buddha described dukkha in this way. Birth is suffering, sickness is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering. Not getting what is desired is suffering, getting what is undesired is suffering. And then he would always conclude this by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. So this relates directly to that. And Excuse me for a moment. And remember, the Buddha wasn't concerned about physical birth or physical rebirth in some 
magical realm. His the central theme in the in the sole concern of his dhamma is ignorance of four noble truths, recognizing it and abandoning it. So the question of birth is, what am I giving birth to in this moment? Is it another moment rooted in ignorance? Then it can only produce further ignorance. If this moment is rooted in wisdom as framed by the Eightfold Path, then this moment will incline me towards awakening, towards the cessation of my contribution to stress and suffering. So the Buddha asked the question, what is subject to birth? Spouses and children are subject to birth. Men and women are subject to birth. Animals of all types are subject to birth. Gold and silver, meaning material wealth, are subject to birth. What is the one defining characteristic or uniting characteristic between all of these? Does anybody have an answer? Impermanence. Hey, gold star there. And so when I'm seeking understanding in something that is impermanent, even if I develop, say, an understanding about... uh, clinging to spouses or clinging to children or clinging to my favorite dog, even if I gain an understanding that it is the clinging that causes the upset, if I don't have the framework and the the uh, inclination and the impetus to let go of that clinging, I won't do it, will I? It's just something that I'll validate through my own practice. So the Buddha points out very clearly what we're to do as well. It's not enough to recognize our infatuations and our entanglements. We have to have the the inner wherewithal and the the concentration, the true jhana, in order to continue with this practice and actually abandon those things that will prove to be a distraction and so prove to be a disappointing. Those things that we would continually give birth to as another moment rooted in ignorance. So let me continue. When those things that we just mentioned are seen as acquisitions, one becomes attached and infatuated with those acquisitions. In other words, the Buddha is not saying we shouldn't have spouses, we shouldn't have relationships, we shouldn't have children or, or pets um, or any of the other things that we partake of in life. We just should not self-identify with them. We shouldn't create an identity over what I have in my life or what I've decided I am against. You know, that, that's a big part of today's culture, isn't it? We, people, people now define themselves in this very, very negative way, not about what I feel is wholesome about life, but I'm all about what I'm against. And if you listen to most people today, that's what the rhetoric is, what I'm against. And that somehow that establishes yourself as a woke person because I've identified what I'm against. All it is is constant distraction, isn't it? All it is is a constant game of aversion and hoping to, to I'm getting too far with this, but hoping to get others on our aversion boat because that, that validates what I'm against. It's, it's a very um, limiting and hurtful way of living, living in the world rather than living free of any, any of that type of acquisitory discernment, meaning I want this, I need more of it, or I don't want any of that. I don't want any of it. I don't want it in my life at all and anybody associated with it. Instead of simply living in life as life occurs, as it unfolds, with peace and calm of understanding what we just covered here. All things are impermanent. There's no reason for me to be to be antagonistic to any thought that arises in my mind because the only thing I need to do is to take a breath and let go of the distracting or disappointing thought. Excuse me. And that sounds terribly simplistic, but it's exactly what the Buddha is teaching here. I'm going to say it again. 
When these are seen as acquisitions, one becomes attached and infatuated with those acquisitions. When we don't become infatuated, we're not attached to those acquisitions. There's no clinging and maintaining. Do you see how this relates directly to dependent origination? So, seeking happiness with what is subject to birth is an ignoble search. So trying to establish happiness or safety or security or um, ongoing fulfillment in what is impermanent, what the Buddha just described, most of human life, isn't it? We are setting ourselves up for dukkha. But when we don't insist that these ordinary phenomena, part of every human life, be any different than they are, then we remain at peace. So how do we do that? How do we do that when when a loved one becomes ill? And, you know, we we get the word, they probably have six months to live. There's going to be upset in our mind. Yes, we're human beings, but we won't take it personal. We won't go down the path as, how can this is happening to me? Some I, I see this a lot in the 12-step community, especially people early in recovery. They'll blame themselves for recovery or why did God do this to me, make me a drug addict or an alcoholic? We do that with an awful lot of things. We take things that are completely impersonal in a very personal way. And the Buddha realized upon his awakening, and we'll get deeper into this in a couple of weeks, that there's nothing personal in this world. How could there be? How could anything be directed solely at me? That's a self-referential view, isn't it? Life is occurring because it's occurring. I'm occurring within my life as it's occurring because I'm occurring within my life. There's no big mystery. There's no where do I come from? Where am I going? I'm here. I'm having this life. Let me live it as meaningfully and mindfully as possible. That's the key to happiness, to be present with life as life unfolds. When I'm stuck in greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, each and every moment is a moment that I want different than it is. I want more of something in this moment, less of something in this moment, or this moment offers no excitement to me and I'm completely ambiguous or bored in this moment. Let me have another drink. Let me have another piece of cake. Let me play some more golf. Let me watch more TV. Let me have some more sex. Let me do this. Let me do that. To get out of the ambiguity or the boredom of this moment, which is really the, the most pernicious problem we all have because we're always chasing that, that uh, almost fear of boredom in this moment. So we keep ourselves going. One of the reasons why I think Twitter and Facebook and those types of things exploded is because they were such a perfect distraction from this moment. We can talk about, you know, our cat had a funny look on his face and let's tell the world about that. It's a distraction that is completely meaningless and it's taken me away from my life in this moment. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but you should think about how much you do it. Let me move on. The Buddha continues, likewise, all of those are subject to sickness, to, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, aversion, and delusion. All of those things that the Buddha just mentioned, when we're attached to them, when we need them to, to establish our happiness and our safety, then we are subjecting ourselves to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. It is the, the craving for and the clinging to these ordinary impermanent phenomena that creates all the stress and suffering in our lives. There's nothing that could be more simple a lesson or a teaching than that one lesson. Stop taking anything personal and you will have liberated yourself from your own deluded thinking. You will live a life of great meaning and purpose moment by moment. Why? Because you're actually living in this moment. Let me continue. And what is noble searching? And then I'll probably end here and then conclude it next week. Noble searching is, while being subject to birth, meaning while being subject to the effects of my own ignorance, while being subject to birth, 
seeking to understand the suffering of this moment. Excuse me. So again, immediately the Buddha is pointing us in the direction of understanding. Even in my deluded state, I am able, through the, through the framework and guidance of the Eightfold Path, understand what has occurred. That's the great revolution, revelation that the Buddha awakened to. And remember, post his awakening, he sat uh, considering for a couple more weeks, is there any way that I can possibly teach this? Excuse me. He thinks to himself, knowing what I know about ignorance and how a conditioned mind is compelled to continue to ignore its own ignorance. How, what do I do to develop a path to pierce that veil of ignorance? The Eightfold Path. That was that was uh, the Buddha's great hallelujah moment. I think, when I say hallelujah, I think of uh, Leonard Cohen's great rendition. If you haven't heard it, go look for it. <laughs> that was the Buddha's great hallelujah moment. I finally understand it. He had to understand it, not by seeking some kind of external explanatory concept that would relate to the nature of human suffering. He had to be within it to understand it with no aversion, clearly looking at his contributions to distress and suffering. And that's when he had his hallelujah moment and was able to then teach the Dhamma. When you do that, seeking the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding, this is noble searching. Searching where it can be, where it can be found, meaning searching within the framework of the Eightfold Path and the larger framework of the Four Noble Truths. Um, noble searching is seeking the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. And he says that again, the yoke of unbinding what? Why, does he, why is he emphasizing this? It's the yoke of ignorance. Again, the, the, the context of what he's teaching here is so important. And then what is that? It's understanding stress, understanding the origination of stress, understanding the cessation of stress, and understanding or developing the path, the Eightfold Path, leading to the cessation of stress. So how do we extricate ourselves from stress? The Buddha just told us through understanding Four Noble Truths. The Buddha then concludes this by saying, Friends, before my self-awakening, such an important line. Again, it's instructions. How do we do it? We do it by ourselves. This is a path of self-awakening. Friends, before my self-awakening, and this is another, this is so significant today because I spent, I don't know how many years chasing this idea, the Bodhisattva or the Bodhisattva vow, until I realized the implications of it. Friends, before my self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened Bodhisattva or Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva path is the prevalent path of modern Buddhism, both Mahayana and Theravadan. And what it is, is taking a vow, and there are certain variations, that I will, take, I will vow now to, to um, put off my own awakening until all sentient beings are awakened. It sounds like the most compassionate act any human being could make, isn't it? <coughs> Excuse me. And it's the most deluded act, because it, it denies the, the Four Noble Truths immediately. If all sentient beings could awaken without the Eightfold Path, there'd be no reason for the Eightfold Path or for the Buddha to teach an Eightfold Path. It would just be a matter of us deciding, okay, let's just wait for everybody to awaken. But the Buddha taught a path for individuals to awaken that they themselves are responsible for. In other words, I can't awaken for you, but I can awaken for myself, and in so doing, I can then contribute to your awakening just as the Buddha did. Maybe not as effectively, but just as the Buddha did. 
by his own example of self-awakening. That's how other people become awakened. If we, and the Buddha didn't teach a salvific religion, but if we really want to, to help other people, if we're truly compassionate, we'll take to the Dhamma like our hair's on fire and awaken, because in that way, we're no longer contributing to the stress and suffering in the world. Let me continue. I'm going to go back to the beginning of that. Friends, before my self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, he was saying, by saying, calling himself an unawakened bodhisattva, and he says this phrase often, he's saying that I was a human being with great compassion for other human beings, a bodhisattva, but I lacked the wisdom to implement that compassion in an effective and I would say safe way. So he didn't do anything. The Buddha didn't try to help anyone until he was awakened himself. And there's a lesson there. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be helpful towards people, but we certainly shouldn't be out trying to, to save the world until we've at least understand how to save ourselves. And we would, we would stop a lot of suffering in the world if we would just practice that one thing and get, get past the idea that there's something woke about seeing myself as the savior of the world. It's one of the most hurtful things that anybody can think of. I myself, being subject to birth, sickness, aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, to greed, aversion, and delusions, I was seeking happiness with what is subject to birth, sickness, aging, and death, etc. So the Buddha is saying that I, he went through the same thing and got stuck in the same process as we are. Then the thought occurred to me, why do I, being subject myself to birth, to sickness, to death, etc., seek, excuse me, Seek what is likewise subject to birth, sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, distress, and despair. What's the Buddha referring to? Well, many of us, we, in fact, there's even phrases about um, when you find your, your soulmate, that other person completes you. And I'm, I'm talking about spouses, obviously, here. So we're saying that with the addition of that person in my life, now my life has meaning and purpose. Or when I finally have children in my life, now my life is fulfilled. Or I finally have that new car in my garage. Or a whole, a whole chocolate cake rather than just one piece. Or I've, I finally broken par. Or I finally got that large green TV. Or, or, or. Always an acquisition. That's setting myself up. For disappointment, aren't I? Because for one thing, I'm not going to be able to get everything in the world. And even the things that I do get are subject to impermanence. So when I'm seeking happiness in the relationship or the object or the position, I'm seeking happiness where it cannot be found. I'm seeking happiness where it's subject or where dukkha is subject to arise in because of my craving for and clinging to. Is that clear to everyone? Is it not clear to anyone? Please say yes if it isn't. This is the key to the Dhamma again. If we, if we keep seeking happiness and where it can't be found, we're only going to generate disappointment. That's the simple lesson here. The Buddha then continues, What if I, being subject to birth, were to seek to understand the suffering of birth, seeking to understand, seeking the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke of, of being bound to ignorance, the unbinding, what if I were to seek it in that intention? That's right intention. What if I, being subject to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, were to seek understanding of the suffering of sickness, etc., etc.? 
What if I were to seek the unborn and the unexcelled release of the yoke? What if that was my motivation? Rather than, meaning understanding the nature of stress and suffering, rather than continue with my conditioned thinking that will only continue that stress and suffering because that, that action is rooted in ignorance of the way things truly are. That's what the Buddha is referring to. We cannot expect to liberate ourselves from ignorance while we are practicing ignorance. It's simple and direct teaching. It makes common sense, doesn't it? Except most of us are so close to it that we need a framework of the Eightfold Path in order to actually accomplish this. So at a later time, I'm going to stop after this and then continue it next. Let me just see something. Yeah. So at a later time, while still a young man, black-haired, early in my life, my parents crying, I shaved off my hair, put on a robe made of rags, and went from home into homelessness. That's when the Buddha left the palace ground seeking understanding. Having gone forth seeking understanding of, of these things, seeking what is skillful, seeking, seeking unexcelled and lasting peace, I went to Alara Kalama. On arrival, I, I said to him, Friend Alara, I want to practice your Dhamma and discipline. I want to become your disciple. Alara said to me, you may stay with, you may stay. My dharma is such that an observant person can understand and integrate my knowledge and, and realize it for themselves through their own direct knowledge. That's an important line because Alara is relaying his dharma to young Siddhartha in a way that Siddhartha would later teach it, that you have to experience it in order to understand it. The problem was that, that Siddhartha experienced it and realized there was nothing there. From reciting, the Buddha continues, from reciting and repetition, I quickly learned his dharma. I could affirm that I knew his dharma. I thought that it is not through the, through the mere, it is not through, sorry. Then I thought that it is not through the mere conviction that Alara Kalama declares that I understand and have integrated his dharma and realize it for myself through direct knowledge. Alara Kalama certainly understands and has integrated his own dharma. So I went to Alara and asked him, what is the culmination of your understanding and, and integration of the Dharma? Alara declared that the culmination of his Dharma was the establishment in the dimension of nothingness. So just as common today, these magical, mystical establishments, such as the dimension of nothingness, much of modern Buddhism speaks of, especially the Zen schools, speaks of establishing yourself in or the understanding of the self as nothing or the realm of emptiness. The Buddha never taught any such thing. In fact, that, that denies the first noble's truth and it denies humanity. To say that and insist that I am just an aspect of nothingness is one of the most hurtful things anybody can think. Excuse me. And it relates directly to the common human problem of self-loathing. For me to buy into the notion that I'm nothing or I, I just ex exist in, in emptiness is the ultimate denigration of self. And again, it contradicts everything the Buddha taught. So coming during the Buddhist time were spiritual disciplines that would establish or seek to establish someone in a magical or mystical realm as reward for practicing this so-called authentic Dharma. And so coming during the Buddhist time were, were Dharmas that whose culmination was the establishment of yourself in the realm of nothingness or the realm of infinite perception, or the realm of infinite non-perception. These are all fabricated self-establishments that the Buddha continuously said, 
Don't do that. Don't go there. They're just hurtful. They're, they're rooted in ignorance. They're rooted in distraction. And they do not accurately reflect the human life. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That a human being has a physical life. A human being does not have a non-physical life. And if I seek to have a non-physical life, I'm denying my own humanity in this moment. And I can lose a lifetime doing that because people do. And it's one of the things that, and I didn't understand it at the time, but it's what really bothered me about my practice of modern Buddhism was the implied culmination was not right here and right now. It wasn't human understanding. It was a magical, mystical understanding that bore no relationship or no usefulness to my life right here and right now. That didn't stop me, though, for many years until I realized what the Buddha actually taught. The Buddha continues, Then I thought, not only does Alara Kalama have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment, I also, so again, the Buddhist seeing that there's some components in Alara Kalama and later in Udeka Ramaputta's teaching that are similar to his. So where's the difference? The Buddha says, I also have conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. What if I were to strive to realize for myself this Dharma through direct knowledge? The Buddha then continues, I quickly developed understanding and fully integrated Alara Kalama's teachings, having realized it for myself, the dimension of nothingness, through direct knowledge. In other words, he understood that, that this concept of, direct, of nothingness was just that. There was nothing there. I then asked Alara Kalama if this was the culmination of his understanding and integration of his dharma. Alara told me that this was the culmination of his understanding and integration of his dharma. He then said that it was a, it was a great gain for his sangha to have a companion such as myself, meaning Siddhartha, in their sangha. He then asked Siddhartha to lead their sangha. So the, Alara Kalama saw the... Um, uh, the value of having Siddhartha Gautama lead his Sangha and so offered him essentially what he walked away from. He left the, the palace and the wealth and power that came with being the, the king's son, seeking understanding. Alara Kalama was in the same way, offering the same uh, bite of the same carrot, wasn't it? Wealth and power. Come be, Alara Kalama was one of the most well-known teachers of his time. Come with me, you're going to be wealthy and you'll be powerful. It wasn't enough for young Siddhartha because it didn't provide an understanding. The Buddha continues, Alara Kalama, my teacher, placed me on the same level as himself, paying me great honor. But I had the thought that this Dharma does not lead to discernment, to dispassion, to cessation, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to self-awakening, or to unbinding from, uh, I'm adding this, from fabricated views. This Dharma only seeks to establish a reappearance in the dimension of nothingness. Another one of the most important lines. It only seeks to establish a reappearance in a fabricated realm, just as the fabricated realm that I'm living in without understanding Four Noble Truths. There's no discernible difference between living a human life in a fabrication. I am the world's greatest meditation teacher or the world's greatest dog owner or the world's greatest anything, whatever, or the world's worst, by the way. That's all a fabrication, and it's just as much of a fabrication as if I do a thousand and one prostrations when I die, I'll get to go to Buddhist heaven. They're both fabricated, they're both speculative, and they're both hurtful. So whether the, self, whether the fabricated belief resolves itself in the physical plane or a non-physical plane, they're both the same. And they're both, in the Buddha and other suttas said, it's both form and formlessness that we're focused on, and they're both fabricated. What the Buddha teaches is to unite a mind in its body through understanding and keep it there. I'm going to stop right there and we'll finish this. Um, we'll finish this sutta next week. Uh.
that's that's today's talk. So, um, Mateo, how are you this morning? Hey, I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, I will take noble silence for today. I'm glad you joined. <laughs> Jen, how are you? Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Um, yeah. So, so seeking happiness in impermanent things, you know, and I think it's powerful to think about um, the people in our lives that we care about. Um, it's definitely an everyday thing that we, we tell ourselves that we need them to be a certain way, or we, you know, we need our children to live forever or at least outlive us in order to be happy and at peace. And that's the lie. You know, that's the lie that ignorance is telling us that peace and happiness comes from an external thing being some kind of way. Yep. And the reality is, the truth is, that happiness and peace comes from experiencing life as life occurs. And understanding that. Right. And bringing, and and then that just points us to jhana meditation. So, yeah. (laughs) It's well said, Jen. Thank you. Good morning, Becky. Wait a minute. Good morning, Alex. Good morning. Wait, wait. Is it me or is it is it not me? It's Alex. <laughs> but Alex looks just like you. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay. <laughs> we have a we have a rather uh, pasted together uh, <clears throat> video and audio <laughs> thing going on here today. So I'm glad you're on. Um, yeah, uh, I, what Jen said, of course, uh, resonated, and sometimes the, the problem I have, and I think, I think David has kind of iterated this a few times, is how do you, uh, how do you deal with you know, not wanting your children to live forever, or at least outliving you. And the way the way I deal with it is I don't dwell on whether or not that's going to happen, which is really sort of just ignoring it. But when you realize, when you experience the Dhamma, enough and that's really the nth degree really getting getting by something like that or or being able to see how it's possible to not not get entangled in that in that uh holding on to that then you you start to realize that it's it's okay to let it go. It's okay not to get entangled in it. Yeah. It's it's the way it should be. It doesn't mean anything except you're not taking thing you're not taking it personally. You're not making it add to the stress of your life. 
Yeah. You're just living your life. And you're living your life as it comes along. And I find that when I'm truly experiencing that, it's wonderful. But it's still very, uh, it doesn't happen. It, it still needs me to really, really work at it. And I think we always, always have to really work at it. And one thing that I love is coming here every Saturday because it gives you that impetus that you need. It it reinforces everything. It yeah. brings you back. It brings you back to the Dharma if you've if you've strayed during the week. Um and well, I was going to say one more thing. In the last few lessons that we've had since we've started this Vipassana, I did realize something personal about the way my, my mind is working, and that is that I really do tend to try to analyze my way out of situations. And realizing that is recognizing that is uh, something that I thought I had done, but not, I haven't really done it. I'm still really ignorant about that. Even though Matt has said many times, drop the story and stay with the feeling. I find that I try to analyze my way out of the feeling. And that was just kind of a revelation to me, which is going to help me along the way as time goes by and, and uh, help me get closer uh, to practicing the Dhamma in every moment. Yeah. Thank you. I'm sorry I went on. So uh, it, was, it was wonderful, Becky. And I mean, you, you, you made the point so well. It, it, we believe that it's, it's a skillful thought that my children should live forever and nothing should ever threaten them. But of course, that's rooted in ignorance. We, we know that nobody lives forever. And the point I'm making is that it is understanding that brings the uh, diminishing of reaction to things like that. And it, and it, it might seem cold to many people to even to just accept the fact that, that my children might die before I do. But that's just human. It, it's just it's just an acceptance of the way things are. And from that understanding, that basic understanding, then there's no reaction because it, it, it's not just happening to me. It happens all the time. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's easy. You know, it took me uh, when I was 14 years old, my best friend died overnight in his sleep and the circumstances were such that that it was easy for me to blame myself for his death even though I had nothing to do with it and it wasn't and I carried that around you know he, Ken was like a he was more than a brother to me um and it really wasn't until I came to the Buddha's Dhamma that I was able to resolve that hurt from 30 years before but it was because of the, I finally got you know I finally was in a position to understand that that this is what happens in life, period. It wasn't that it was right or wrong or, you know, Ken was this or Ken was that or I was this. It was just, this is life. And it, it was, I don't want to call it a catharsis because it wasn't having that much of an effect on me at that point, but it was a relief that I didn't even know I was carrying it around, you know, this this type of thing. So, But we do it all the time, you know, whatever we decide we want or or don't want, we attach ourselves to. So thank you, Becky. Thank you. Uh, is Alex with us or is that just two instances of Becky's phone? I'm on Alex's computer. Okay. 
so that's yeah. very good. Mary, how are you this morning? Good morning. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> um, I I think this suit, uh, you know, should come in a little pocket-sized things for easy reference. Um, it's just such a great one to come back to. Um, it's just so critical. And, um, you know, just knowing that uh, my understanding the three marks, dependent origination, as we deepen our understanding of these things, and knowing that the way is the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, it's so empowering to know that all the healing or untangling or release or unburdening, unbinding, that it's all within our power and it doesn't, you know, cost anything. It doesn't, mm. you know, it, it requires uh, a commitment to jhana, a deepening of our concentration so that we can truly understand these factors and summon them up. Um, so having that pocket version of this sutta in, you know, in your head so that you can summon it up and release yourself from the burdens and the birthing that's going on all the time or taking things personally, um, you know, just undoing you know, things that our society or our upbringing or whatever have caused us to prioritize our life in sort of the opposite way um, as this sutta is teaching us. So it does take time and you have to be gentle with yourself while you're going through this process, but it um, it is it is the way. Um, it just is, it is the way to yeah. lighten enlighten but lighten your your life and your ability to live and to slow it all down um you know it's just powerful powerful stuff and some days i'm um better at the integration of all of this than others but this says as you know i always learn something from you know what everybody before me has said and you know uh, it's just so peaceful to come back to this and to continue to come to class, um, to have each other in the Sangha. And, um, you know, it's, it's just so important. Um, so thank you, John. Uh, thank, you. thank you, Mary. Glad you joined us today. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Good to be here. Good to see everybody. Um, uh, Personal, taking things personal, that's always something that's a challenge for me. Uh, something happened this week. Uh, somebody blew me off for some plans, and I was pretty, uh, I was bummed for a second, and then it all worked out. But I think it's establishing your, like, uh, you know, being able to see that that's, you don't have to take that personally is, uh, is, a, is a big thing. And uh, I guess you know, constantly establishing yourself in discomfort is uh, a challenge, but then when you can see that, you don't have to establish yourself in all the, I guess, the yeah. aggregates or whatever, whatever's coming up, then there's freedom behind there. So, yeah. Uh, Going to keep on working on that. So, good to be here. Glad you're here, Brett. Good morning, David. Hi, everyone. Let's just talk a little bit about what 
Mary said, what happens when things slow down? And to go back to what Becky and Jen said, what happens is that you can be fully engaged with these people that you love, that that slowness allows that mindfulness that you've been developing. So you're fully engaged. I have found that it, I, I, once I understand that I, I can't have ownership of these aggregates, that it's released me and being a householder, it's allowed me to love my children, be compassionate with that IT guy, uh, just understand the person standing next to me a little bit more where normally it would just fly by and I wouldn't care. Mm. So it's, it's allowed engagement, but I don't have to cling to what happens at that moment. So, uh, there's subtle developments that happen as this practice develops and, and that's the benefit on a daily basis. Yeah. So, uh, again, the, all these lessons are down to understanding suffering and the sensation of suffering. Everything else is commentary, but it really is just, you know, simple teachings. So thank yeah. you, John. Uh, thank you, David. That moment you described is, is Dhamma practice, isn't it? It's just being present. And that made that moment a meaningful moment, didn't it? Just because you were present for it. That's, that's the significant difference. So thank you, David. Good morning, Ram. Good morning. Um, yeah, this is a, an interesting discussion um, about those attachments to the ones, you know, that around us, our families, our friends. Um, I started out my life really not wanting to have those attachments. I was running away from being a householder as fast as I could. Um, and then, you know, after my my um, my time in, in the spiritual communities uh, at, at 35, I all of a sudden find myself being a householder and and having children and, and, and family. Um, but at that point. Uh, it did not flip over to being fully attached to it. Um, although I, I didn't quite understand um, that my my relationship to my family uh, was actually a healthy one. I always thought I wasn't in, involved enough. And then I realized I'm just not attached to what is happening. I'm, I'm fully involved here. I'm there. Um, and uh, and that was even before I, I, I got into the Dharma. Now that, I, now that I, I'm living in the Dharma, um, I'm actually now at peace at, with mm. being in my family and not attached to it. And it's a piece that's rooted in understanding what's occurring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it it it, it does um, 
it does keep you from a lot of conflict. Yeah. And you can just see things evolve. You can just see how um, these people change over time. When you're not attached to to the fact that uh, they shouldn't be changing, um, it makes having a family a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. uh, even when you when you get to the point where where you can you could see the possibility that that um, you may outlive them, you know, um, and it, that's still emotionally disturbing. But with the Dharma, it's it's easier to be at peace with that. Yeah. That's all I have for that. I would say that is extremely well said, Ram. You know, it's easy to be at peace when you understand you're at peace with everything. That's the whole that's you know, what the Buddha taught. And he described that quality of mind of an awakened human being as peaceful and calm. You know, nothing nothing that we can achieve as human beings. Thank you. Hello, Anthony. Uh, let me unmute. Hi. <laughs> um, first of all, I've enjoyed watching Bodhi shift between <laughs> the instincts of rest and protection yeah. <laughs> through, through this whole discussion. Um, I, and what you, it, the suited today was incredibly important, powerful, simple, and not easy in the execution. But um, I won't take up a lot of time. I think I'll exercise the proverbial Buddhist knee here and uh, pass on noble silence. <laughs> it's good to see you, Anthony. You too. How are you, Kevin? Hi, John. Hello, everyone. Good to see you. This is, um, yeah, it's really an important talk, and just I really appreciate everybody's comments because it, it makes it so much clearer. Um, I think, you know, the whole thing about, you know, the family and as acquisitions, etc., has always been kind of a sticking point for me, because it always, it, initially when I learned about it, it sounded like the Buddha said, you just have to turn your back on these people, and you have yeah. to leave, like he did, and it's like, well, you know, that's kind of impossible right now for me to do, but, you know, it, it's everyone's comments, and, and the sutta, and your explanation make it so much clearer that we can still be in a family and be in this life but you can't be anywhere else essentially yeah but if you apply the second noble truth you know you're not you have to give up the greed and the aversion and the deluded thinking that you attach to your family and i think the next part is to develop compassion loving kindness toward them and then the buddha would say even to the stranger and to your enemy like david was saying even to that it guy or this person standing next to me um that's the important piece of it. It's yeah. hard to integrate that every single moment of my life still, but that's what um, we're striving to achieve. And I can see that um, yeah. all of my sangha is trying to do that as well. So thank you. And thank you, John, for your teaching. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. You, you, you notice something that's so important. We're all doing this together. You know, we, we can't do it by ourselves, can we? We need the support yeah. of each other. Even just to, to uh, as we are developing right view, we often need other people's developing right view to help clarify our own, and that's just what the song is doing. So, thank you. So helpful. Hello, Adam. Good morning, friends. Good to see you. 
Likewise, nice to be back. Um, I got two, two things out of this that, that uh, one, one personal and one kind of more general, but um, I think I mentioned this before. I spent, you know, 30 years kind of stumbling around in, in, in modern and the idea of, uh, you know, the Bodhisattva being like the ultimate thing, you know, um, and, you know, the, the idea that it's, that's ignoring the Four Noble Truths had never occurred to me before. It's incredibly uh, liberating, um, yeah. you know, kind of escaping that, that, that monkey I had on my back from such a long time ago. Um, but it made me think of like uh, uh, being on, a, on, a, on an airplane and they walk you through the safety measures and to make sure you put on your own face mask before you... Uh, uh, before you try to help somebody else, <laughs> yeah. But you got to make sure that you're uh, you're keep your own um, understanding before trying to tell somebody else what it is. Yep. Um, the other thing was the idea of um, that you can still seek to understand, um, seek understanding while you're in the midst of your own suffering. Yes, that, that's you know it's from that place, from from that fact that you that you find liberation. Um, yeah. And that kind of carry around with me all day long every day. So thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, it's so important to understand that the Dhamma is not an escape from the ills of the world. It's a way of understanding the ills of the world because the ills of the world are described as dukkha occurs. That's the first noble truth. And so, again, getting back to to that idea that the Bodhisattva vow uh, denies the four noble truths. It's just that. It's saying that there's nothing, dukkha doesn't occur. You know, and wrong views aren't the cause of dukkha. Well, okay, but it's it's not something the Buddha taught. So, thank you, Adam. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for teaching. And uh, I was reflect and ask myself: uh, all form of Buddhism doesn't matter of school. They have some uh, basic, simple idea, similarity to all form. Uh, it's liberation. And what we try to liberate from? We try to liberate from you, from fabricated idea. And um, it's maybe easy to understand, easy to read about, but it's very hard to practice. Thank you. you know, it, it, again, you bring up such a good point. We're not trying to liberate ourselves from some outside force, from Lucifer, the devil or some Buddhist devil chasing after us and, and luring us into unskillful acts, we're just simply trying to liberate ourselves from our own thinking, from our own ignorance. And that's a significant difference because if I'm trying to extricate myself from some external power, the first thing I've got to do is figure out how I can get more power. You know, that's, and Again, it's, just, it's a fabricated thought that just feeds another fabricated thought. You, you can't extricate yourself from that. But from understanding, the problem is my thinking. The problem is my wrong views. I can certainly change that, can I? Or at least I think I can. <laughs> I hope I can. And again, that's the significant difference. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, Tim. Thank you. Um, this sutta, um, you can easily see how this sutta can be misunderstood. Um, I think if I were to read this sutta when I first started the Dhamma, I would be getting information from this that wouldn't resonate at all um, from your discussion from your teaching today and from your comments too John it, this 
is being repeated over and over again. The the, the identifying with impermanence leads to dukkha. The the, uh, anatta, the three marks interacting with each other. Self-identifying to impermanent phenomena leads to distraction. So anytime I identify with anything in the phenomenal world, I am subject to dukkha. Yeah. No, no way. Just that's really what it comes down to. So, obviously, that happens on a daily basis with everybody. So, the Buddha tells us by understanding the four noble truths, we're able to have this self awareness, this noble searching, this self awareness, this pure consciousness, and so we know that yes, okay, I am now involved in this. I understand it. I'm not going to react to it, and therefore, hopefully, not suffer. Now, that's a very simple, simplistic analysis of, of that. I know it's more than that, but it's really the cessation of the self-identification. That's what I'm getting at. Yep. Getting to is, that, is but... if I can if I can not identify with any with these impermanent phenomena that will aid in not reacting and therefore not suffering. I, and this is for me personally, and it's, it has nothing to do with anybody else. I tend not to uh, look at the goal of happiness or joy because for me, I feel for me that is subject to clinging and craving. And so, I, I tend to look at more of a contentment, more of a, more of a just even keel. If, if I find myself overjoyed, I, I, I tend to think that that's something that I may miss when it leaves. So I find that bliss to be more of a contentment, more of an equanimity. And how, does, how do we get that? Well, the Buddha tells, tells me by jhana by practicing jhana by getting into those layers of jhana and then practicing that and or living and applying I should say the eightfold path so the brings me to one last point um, that I'm getting out of this too and we've been talking about this for two weeks with the householders and the family and the kids and things like that there's these there's these there are these things in life that are controllable and uncontrollable, but there's also the thing in the middle where there's we have some control, some control. I think I would make the argument that I, I think for human beings, there's an instinctive thing to have family, to have children, to be that way. Um, I certainly, I think if if we were to do it in reverse and learn this dhamma when we're young, we may be able to make that decision. You know, maybe having children really isn't the smartest thing to do because it, we will be subjected to the possibility of them leaving before us. But that's impractical. So by understanding this, that there's these controllable factors and uncontrollable factors, I look at the Eightfold Path as that way of, of the things that that the self-aware person has to be able to control. Controlling the right, my views, my actions, my yep. virtuous factors, my meditation. And hopefully, within those controllable items, I can understand 
the things that happen that I do not have control over and not react to it and not lead to suffering. So that's what I got from this. Well said, Tim. Thank you so much. Julia, how are you? <laughs> Hello. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. I'm good, John. Um, so what I get from the sutta, I see that, I see that to me, I have to break it out into little parts because it makes more sense. Cause this is, this is, uh, this is a big chunk of information and, um, yeah. breaking it up is e- makes it easier to understand. So in the beginning, the, the Buddha, of course, shows us ignoble searching. And he says, well, trying to find happiness and things that are impermanent, no good. That's ignoble. We're not going to find, we're not going to find happiness. We're going, we're going to find more suffering because yeah. we're going to attach ourselves to these things, whether they be people or, or actual objects or events. And, and then of course we're going to suffer because you know, we're going to identify with them. And then when they're impermanent and so if they pass or they, you know, they, um, they, they dissolve, it will affect us. It will make us unhappy. So ignoble, ignoble searching, no good. And so then he says, noble searching. What is noble searching? Well, noble searching is understanding three marks of existence, understanding that everything here is impermanent um, and that we ourselves are impermanent. And um, understanding, basically it's understanding emptiness, that there's nothing here that could substantiate a permanent self. That's what it is. It's understanding that emptiness. Then the Buddha goes and says, okay, well, this is what my search took me, you know, and he explains how, uh, with, um, in, bo- in both, with both yogis that he, uh, practiced under, he, he seemed to have, uh, attained, uh, a level of jhana, the dimension of nothingness. And what is the other one? Let me think. Perception, uh, perception of perception and non-perception. Those are like levels of jhana also. And, um, even though it, he, impermanent levels of jhana. Yes. And even though he, he, uh, he attained that. He realized that that was all that there was in those practices, that something was lacking. And th- the one line that really um, made me realize that that's what he was trying to explain was when he says, I'll dismiss teaching that which only with great difficulty I attained. And so he, he was showing us that he did attain unbinding enlightenment or liberation yep. through those other pra- through other practices, through, you know, through, through, through you know, but... But he he did attain uh, unbinding, but he realized that he became he realized what what um, what a reg, what a, a regular person would have to go through in order to attain the same state, and so then he created well he became to, he came to realize that um, dependent origination and he understood you know he came he came to give us this blessing of the Dhamma, which uh, uh, actually a homemaker regular human beings like ourselves could actually also become unbinded, which is amazing. So it seems like he's taking us from step to step to step. And he's showing us that these other ways are not, are not, uh, are not also not ways to, to actually follow that if we follow the Dharma, so what's the difference between those ways and the Dharma that we practice is we, we have wisdom, we have understanding. He gives us, he gives us not only the jhana, the, the, um, the practice, but he also gives us the knowledge of how to unbind, you know, with all with understanding um, dependent origination, understanding um, the, the three marks of existence, 
then we have then we can come become unbinded. So I, I find it's very it's like step by step he's taking yeah. us through the process of how he became unbinded. Yeah. So, Thank you, Julia. That's what I have to say, John. I don't know if I have it right. No, you do. Please, it, say, no. It, please, it, please say no if I don't. <laughs> Uh, yes, you you do have it right. Uh, the the Buddha is simply teaching in this. I mean, it is a a rather dense sutta, but he's teaching us in a very simple and direct way what Dhamma practice is and what it isn't, where to look and where not to look. You know, it relates back to I know you've heard me say this a few times. I used to have a teacher. His name was Arnold Patton, and he taught something that had a few tenets of Buddhism to it, but not you know not authentically. And he used to say that if you're in New York and you want to get to Chicago, but you believe you're in Los Angeles, he said, you'll never get there. And that relates to the Dhamma. The Dhamma only works in this moment. That's why I say wise restraint is practice in this moment. We have to actually be here, not somewhere else. We've got to be seeking understanding, not something else, not another acquisition if we're going to develop the Dhamma. And this sutta, uh, and, this, and you all are expressing that clearly. So thanks, Julia. Hello, Michael. Hi, everybody. Um, I, mean, I just wrote uh, just some notes down so there'll be a little maybe uh, disjointed or all over the place so please bear with me and, uh, be patient uh, noble searching is searching for the origin of our self-referential ego self the ego self arises when consciousness becomes aware of itself this is where the establishment of self-referential views occurs as seen in the Nagara Sutta. That's the origin of our craving and clinging. Uh, extremely important to be aware of that, the origin where it, uh, in order for us to put an end to it. Uh, I was listening to Adam, and uh, he was mentioning uh, 30 years of uh, uh, modern Buddhism. Uh, quite a journey, Adam. Um, but I think it really ties into what we're talking about here. And also, John, I know you've had a, a similar course to get where you are today, and that is that you've been uh, in many different disciplines and have come to, you know, come to the understanding of uh, what the Buddhist Dhamma uh, is. Uh, and when the Buddha was searching in the realms of uh, what is uh, the other... Uh, Disciplines he was following at that time in the perception, uh, perception and non-perception, and also of um, what was the other one? The uh, the nothingness. Um, uh, where am I here? Dimension uh, of nothingness. Oh yeah, dimension of nothingness. He realized he realized uh, you know throughout his uh, you know arduous journey there that he recognized what the Dharma is not and understood then what the Dhamma is by understanding what it is not. The same can be uh, applied to uh, 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 recognizing what we are by recognizing what we are not, recognizing the not-self gives us a better understanding of what we are. So I think that's an extremely important uh, thing to be aware of. I also just like to point out, um, somewhat unrelated, but everything's related to the Dhamma when we're speaking here. The phenomenal world is the world we create in our own minds uh, from a deluded self-referential view of the worlds. 
So everything that is occurring in, in our world is uniquely our experience. Uh, and because of that, when the light goes out on the five aggregates, so does this phenomenal world that we created. So that's uh, kind of, for me, um, uh, reinforces that whole idea of impermanence and yeah. how uh, it relates to uh, our being here. The other thing I just want to touch upon was I think uh, Becky had uh, was talking about in entanglement uh, and uh, someone else was maybe maybe Jen too, but uh, or Mary, maybe actually Mary also. So, but the one thing I, I had picked up um, uh, again is again staying on that same that same concept of recognizing the not self. We can entangle ourselves in as many things as we choose to each and every moment of the day. Uh, and many times, like, uh, I find myself and find that I do. Uh, but from the emptiness suttas that we had read just a little little while back, uh, one thing that that helps me understand, like, when I'm, when I'm so entangled with what is going on is... Sometimes I'll just, you know, in meditation or just like I'll pull back and remember, and he said this in, in this suit, it says, let, let, let everything just go. Just release it. Release yourself from what is occurring. Just as the, you know, with the arising and the passing away of the breath, just release it. And uh, in the sutta, it said the joy comes in the actual release of all those things that you are just letting go in that moment and recognizing that as the not-self and that disentanglement will bring you that, that peace and tranquility that we are searching for. So that's about all I have to say. I'm sorry for being so long-winded. But thank, thank you, Michael. Again, it's well said. Um, so our retreat reservations are open. Um, Please sign up uh, as soon as you can if you're joining us. Uh, and beginning next Saturday, we're going to have uh, in-person classes again in Frenchtown. Karen. Karen, would you like to say hello this morning? Hi, everybody. I, I uh, really, really uh, enjoyed this particular um, song of discussion today. It just really... Um, resonated and I felt myself feeling a lot of discomfort and pain over the discussion on attachment to spouses. It's something that is really, um, well, I'm, it's, I'm finding it hard to articulate, but it was very, very helpful to hear all of you today. And I think that Ram touched something in me when he said that it's really about the cessation of self-identification and I think as long as I can I think of my husband as being my lifelong partner and that my life without him will be somehow terribly lonely uh, then I am indeed going to suffer and um, but that's, that's a, it's a hard place and I know I'm not telling you anything new it's a hard thing to do to separate and, and not attach and not identify. But today really, really helped me. And also, I just wanted to explain 
that the reason that John doesn't call on me is because I specifically asked him not to call on me because I was finding that my heart was beating in my chest every time I saw it coming around in my direction. <laughs> so I appreciate that he's honoring that and thank you all for looking out for me. <laughs> thank you, Karen. Thank you, Jen. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to say that uh, we should understand uh, and not be attached to our spouses or children or those we love, it's easy to say, it's hard to do, uh, but it doesn't mean that we, it, it, it doesn't imply indifference. In fact, it implies just the opposite. When we let go of, when I let go of the need for people to be any different than they are, including be permanent, then I can let them be who, who they are in this moment. And in that way, I'm actually with them, not in a projection of them. And that, but again, it's a difficult thing, and everybody's situation is different. But um, the understanding that comes from deeply understanding these three marks is the liberation that's part of the Dhamma. We understand the impermanence of all things. We understand that other people, uh, unless they've taken to the Dhamma and developed it, or have a fabricated view of themselves that they're projecting onto us. And so loved ones that know that the end is near, they may be caught up in their own fear of that. And that's something else that we can help people through because we understand it. Uh, I don't get, get too deep into another subject, but uh, thank you again, Karen, for sharing that. Um, yeah, I did mention that we're going to start up again in, in uh, Frenchtown next Saturday and Tuesday. So uh, beginning on the 20th, all of our classes will be in person and live streamed as they always are. Uh, I think that's all for the announcements. We'll uh, we'll finish with meta as we always do. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in breath and your out breath. And these are the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied unburdened with duties, and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. <clears throat> Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.